Today we are on question number 19 of the New City Catechism. I will read the question, and then we will read the answer together. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yes, to justify His justice, God Himself, out of mercy, reconciles us to Himself and delivers us from sin and from the punishment for sin by a Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to be able to gather together today to sing praises to you, and, uh, and we ask that our hearts would be sincere in worship. Uh, as we just sang and as we hear teaching, um, and as we, we worship more in song, we pray that our, our hearts would uh, be focused on you and your glory, uh, and that you would be pleased uh, with what we are doing and what you have put in our hearts to do. Father, you did what we could not do. You satisfied the wrath that had to be carried out. Uh, you sent your son uh, to take that punishment for us, and we received his righteousness. Father, I pray that as we go throughout life, that that picture would be ever-present among us, that our greatest problem has been solved, that we are no longer under the wrath of you, but we have received your mercy, and that you look on us the same way you look on your son, uh, that we give you pleasure and, uh, and I pray that we would uh, be clear in that thought. And yet now we pray that we would also uh, realize our freedom from sin and its constant tug on us uh, to put ourselves back under its, its power. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts to persevere, uh, to bring our sin into the light, that you would uh, remove its power from us and that we would be slaves to righteousness and not be fooled with the idea that we can we can control our own lives, that we can be our own master. Father, we will serve a master, and you've made that plain to us in your word, and we, uh, we feel it as a reality. Uh, but we pray that our master would be righteousness, that obedience to you would bring us pleasure because you have made those things uh, for our good. And I pray that they would um, reveal your love uh, for us to us. Father, I pray as we uh, enter the, the summertime that you would uh, be with the students who have left us for a time, uh, that you would uh, bless them where they are, uh, that you would use them to further your kingdom, and that you would bring them back safely to us. Uh, please help us as a church to expand your kingdom. Use us as your tools. Father, I pray that you would um, be with Kevin as he teaches. Fill him with your spirit. Uh, Thank you for his work and prep, pre preparation, and I pray that you would uh, make our hearts receptive uh, to the teaching of your word. Um, we ask that you would uh, work in us and reach your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture today will be taken from Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. Mark chapter 11, 12 through 21. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. 
and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But if you have, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> Thanks, Christina and Sam. Um, all right, well, uh, imagine uh, that we decided to start a youth group. We don't have a youth group right now, but imagine we decided we're going to start a youth group. Uh, and let's say that it started out kind of weak. And let's say it was like a most typical Redeemer fashion. It was like heavy on teaching and not very heavy on fun and games and, and all that stuff. And so there's just a few kids that are there. Uh, shoemakers are definitely there in attendance uh, to avoid... Dad's wrath, and uh, some others are there, and um, it's just kind of lame. Like I said, it's just heavy on teaching, not a lot of fun. A doctrine is 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 getting uh, taught that is good. It's biblically precise. The gospel is being proclaimed, um, but nobody really wants to be there. Uh, and more than that, um, nobody is really coming in. And so, there, let's say there's some folks in the church. And man, they're passionate about kids hearing the gospel in Starkville. And they realize, look, if we're going to want to teach these, you know, the, the kids, the youth in Starkville the gospel, we, we got to get them in. We got to bring them to the, the church. And so there's a meeting and uh, some people kind of have some ideas. And we say, hey, let's do this. Let's do like a community-wide kind of we'll get an inflatable water slide type of thing. Uh, get some pony rides in the mix. We'll do some other things. And, uh, and so every week, there's kind of new things that we kind of introduce, and it goes awesome. Like, it goes better than we can think, and just the, the crowd starts to, to really come in, and it's just a blast. People are having a good time, and then we're evaluating. It's just like, well, hey, this is good. We got a lot of the younger kids, the junior high kids are coming in, but we're kind of weak on the senior high. And so some folks get together, they, they brainstorm, um, and we figure out, you know what, like a, a live concert kind of coffee shop thing would be. Could, could maybe work. And so there's some networking. We figure some things out, and we kind of have this live concert thing at the church. Live concert, coffee shop, kind of ground zero for people to hang out, and it goes great. Again, just another success. So the, the junior high students, they're loving it. The high school students, they're loving it. Parents love it because they basically have free child care for their, for their, their little kids, and then, like, the older kids, the high school students, they're hanging out at church. So that's got to be good, right? And so it's just a big win. Uh, and, and, and it just it continues to grow. Things just continue to get better and better. But the tail starts to wag the dog a bit here. And there's no real space for, for Bible teaching because that's not really the, the mood or the feel that we have going. Uh, and if we did, it would feel a little bit like a bait and switch, like come for the good time and then we're going to sneak in the Bible verse and that feels a little bit shady, so we don't want to do that. And, and then one day, the, the person who, you know, had this heart to reach the youth in Storkville, they come up on that evening 
and they see all this stuff going on. And, and it's, just, it's just a circus. Like there's kids outside, there's animals, there's concerts inside. And, and it's, and it's kind of cool, but any kind of Bible teaching or gospel proclamation would just seem out of place. And, and you would imagine the person whose idea it was would think, how did we get from, from trying to proclaim the gospel to the youth in Starkville to becoming like a kid's entertainment company? How did we get here? But even though it is what it is, there's not much Bible teaching or gospel proclamation happening, a, a couple years into it, there was a family that came. This family, they came to faith, the, the parents and the children, uh, and they, they joined the church, became faithful members of the church. And it usually only takes one good story to keep a bad idea alive forever, right? And just one quick lesson that God works in ridiculous ways. And so when he works in one ridiculous way, doesn't mean the way is good. Um, that's not even besides. But anyway, but you could see how it'd be, it'd be easy for us or, or other churches to lose their way. Uh, something starts with, with, with good intentions, but then somehow, some way, over time, the original purpose gets lost. And just to be clear, I'm not against youth groups or people having fun. I'm not saying that at all. I hope we'll have a youth group where somebody might have fun one day. I'm just saying, like, it's easy to see how you can lose your way in all this. And this is what's happening at the temple. The, the temple was, was the Jewish symbol of faith, maybe much like the, the cross is a symbol of Christianity. Like when Jewish people would think of their faith, they might think of the temple and the way we might think of the cross. And so the people of Israel would go to the temple annually. They make their sacrifices. And it was also a place where foreigners, or as the New Testament would say, Gentiles, would come to seek God. But, but eventually what was happening at the temple became something else. Now, before we get into it, one thing you need to know in this passage is that when, when people would come, they, they were supposed, the people of Israel were supposed to come to the temple, to Jerusalem, to make sacrifices annually. And so if you're around there, you would bring one of your animals and you sacrifice that animal. But what if you lived really far away? You know, what did you, did you have to, you know, haul this animal all the, these miles to the temple? And you did not. There was an allowance where people could, could travel into Jerusalem and buy an animal to sacrifice while they were there. And so uh, there was a market for animals around the temple. And so people set up shop in the court of Gentiles. That was this area uh, around the temple. Uh, and that's where people would sell these animals. And that isn't the idea that animals were bought and sold in Jerusalem isn't necessarily the problem. But we'll get to that later. But as we consider this passage, I want to consider three questions. The first is this. What is God's purpose for the temple? Two, why was Jesus so angry? And three, what does this mean for us? So first, what is God's purpose for the temple? So as Christians in 2021, we probably don't really get the temple. Um, we don't get how significant it was probably in Jesus's day. And like I said, if the cross is the main symbol of Christianity, the temple would probably at least be where the mind went when thinking about the Jewish faith. And, and when we read about the origins of the temple, we get a better idea of what it was and what it meant. In Exodus 25, verse 8, God says to Moses, says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So the, the temple, the tabernacle, 
is where God would dwell in the midst of Israel. And then later, during the, the time of King Solomon, it went from being a tabernacle, which was like a portable temple, to being a permanent temple. And, and it, was, it was built over a period of time, and it was glorious. And, uh, and so with, when King Solomon uh, built it, we read about him uh, uh, dedicating it with prayer in 1 Kings 8. And go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 8, because there's something I want you to catch there. 1 Kings chapter 8. And so what's happening here is David, King David, Solomon's father, left him all the materials to build the temple. Solomon pulls it off. Solomon was amazing, as many of you know. And he actually pulls off the building of this glorious temple. And then in chapter 8, he is giving a prayer of dedication. And I want to highlight a few areas where you can see the relationship that the temple has with prayer. So 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 27 to 30. So 1 Kings 8, 27 to 30 says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open Uh, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive." So do you see this connection between prayer and the temple? If the temple is where Yahweh dwells, then it makes sense that the people would pray in the temple or towards the temple. Now let's look at verse 33 uh, in Kings 8, uh, verse 33 and 34 says this. It says, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and turn again to acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. So he says, if they pray and plead with you in this house. And he says other things like this throughout. If you were to read chapter eight, you'd see he says it's about other types of things. But I want to highlight uh, again in 1 Kings chapter eight, verse 41 through 43. We're going to talk about what this has to do with the Gentiles, the foreigners. It says this in verse 41, likewise, when a foreigner, or as the New Testament will say, a Gentile who is not of your people, Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven, your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I built is called by your name. So Solomon is praying for the foreigners or the Gentiles who would come and seek God at the temple. Now, one thing you need to note, a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament 
is, is the Old Testament has more of a centripetal force and, and the New Testament has a more centrifugal force. I always try to sound smart with big words and it backfires. Backfires. <laughs> I speak for a living. Um, okay. I should have just skipped this part altogether. I knew this would trip me up. Centripetal. That is, that is a force that moves to the center. Centrifugal moves away from the center. Now, the Old Testament had more of a force was moving towards the center, towards the temple. And so when, when, when Gentiles, when the nations would seek God, they would come to the temple. And then in the New Testament, we see the opposite. It, it works away from the center. This is really cool. Another talk for another time. But the, the, the temple is Jesus, and his body is a part of that temple. And so, the t- so rather than when people seek God in the Old Testament, they come to the temple. In the New Testament, the temple goes out seeking them, which is cool. Another talk for another time. But in the Old Testament, they come to the temple. And so the, the, the point here is that the purpose of the temple, or one of the purposes, is that it was a tangible place for foreigners to seek God. They could come to his dwelling place, they could seek him, and they could find him. And Solomon was praying hundreds of years before, hear them when they come here to seek you and they pray to you. And and, and the passage from Isaiah that Jesus quotes communicates this idea. It's from Isaiah 56, 6 and 7, says this, and the foreigners, or so the, the Gentiles, who join themselves to the Lord, that means foreigners who convert to the to the Jewish faith. Says to, when, when the, and foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, the temple, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So the foreigners, the Gentiles, who join themselves to the Lord, when they come to the holy mountain, Jerusalem, the temple, God's plan was to make them joyful in his house of prayer, a house of prayer for all peoples. That is what it was supposed to be. But what Jesus witnessed was something different. It was not people, foreigners who were joyful in the house of prayer. Rather, it was foreigners getting ripped off by the locals. And it made them angry. So my second point, why was Jesus so angry? Jesus is clearly mad about this. He kicks out those who are selling and buying. He turns over tables and chairs. He wouldn't allow anybody to bring anything else into the temple. And he said this, he said, is it not written My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You know, we don't see Jesus get mad a whole lot in the Bible. So when we do, we need to really pay attention. And in John 2, we see him cleanse the temple as well in John chapter 2. But but some think this is probably not the same event. You know, the cleanse the temple. I mean, how many times did he do this? I don't know. Something only happened once. Some think twice. I, I lean towards maybe it was twice and that he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and then again at the end of his ministry. And the disciples noticed that in, in John 2, uh, when after he, it, 
cleansed the temple, the, the, cleansed the temple he said, they remembered the scriptures taught that, that it said of Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus understood the purpose of the temple and it enraged him to see what it had become. Instead of foreigners coming there to seek God and pray, they're getting harassed and they're getting ripped off. Now, I should say again, uh, this isn't totally off the idea of people buying and selling animals around the temple. There's an allowance for, for people to come from far away and rather than bringing their animals, they could pay for them there. But here's what happened. And, and some of you who are more entrepreneurial, who, who know how to see an opportunity where there's a, a lack of supply and demand, and you know you can meet that demand and maybe make a dollar or two. So some people noticed this. They said, hey, there's going to be demand for animals near the temple. We can provide these animals. And you know what? They need these animals. That's going to affect the price. The demand is going to be way up there. Like it's going to be like a spiritual God says, you must do this thing. It's like when you go to the movies and you get a Coke and a communion cup for $5, you know, or, or two, two gallons for $5.50. You know, it's just this demand that they got them there. They got them. And so they take advantage of the situation because there's money to be made. And that made Jesus furious. God designed something for a purpose, a temple that would be a God-centered, God-exalting magnet to the nations. Outsiders would come and they would seek and find the true God, Yahweh, the God who was really there. All these false gods that existed in the world that aren't real, that aren't there. Here the God was and he was there and they took it and they, and they messed it up. They put a religious veneer over it and made it something else. And rather than finding God, they would find themselves ripped off, taken advantage of. And Jesus saw it and it made him angry. It made him angry to see the temple turned into a, a shady business. The, the God-exalting magnet to the nations became the place where the nations would be cheated. And it makes him angry to see something that he created for his purposes to be manipulated by his people for their own purposes. Now, what does that mean for us? Number three. Now, one thing that's interesting to note about this passage, you might've noticed it in the reading, is that the story about Jesus cleansing the temple is sandwiched between this seemingly random story about the fig tree, right? Jesus curses a fig tree, really random. But the way it's positioned in this text, it, it makes sense. So in Mark 11, 12 through 14, Jesus sees a fig tree with leaves, but no figs. And so he says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Then the next day after he cleanses the temple, we read the disciples pass by the fig tree and it's withered to the roots. So the fig tree was fruitless, though it had the appearance of being fruitful. It was in leaf, had the appearance of being fruitful, but it was not. It was supposed to have figs to meet the people's hunger. Instead, there was nothing. And you all know that it is more than possible for individuals and churches to have the appearance of being fruitful, but to actually be fruitless. All leaf, no fruit. And this is often called hypocrisy or pretense. God hates that. This makes Jesus 
angry, angry enough to throw over a table and to do so righteously, not wrongly, not losing it, in righteous anger. So we should be careful that hypocrisy and pretense are not words that can describe any of us. And listen to some of the scriptures that address this idea of hypocrisy or pretense. In Revelation 3.1, to the church in Sardis, it was said by Jesus, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Is it possible for a person or a church culture to have the reputation of being alive, but actually being dead? Yes. In Amos 5.21, we read this. God says, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. These solemn assemblies, these worship services, they did not please the Lord. They were despised by the Lord. He hated the mingling of pretense and worship. He hates that. God takes no pleasure in that. And he takes no pleasure. Another thing he takes no pleasure in is fake repentance. All words, no heart. All leaf, no fruit. In Jeremiah 3.10, we read this. Yet for all this Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. In pretense, they return to the Lord. It isn't real. There's no substance to it. Outwardly, it might look real, but it's not. It's fake. It's pretentious. It's all leaf, no fruit. Then in Luke 12, 1 through 3, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be, that, that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you, have, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You might think something is hidden. It isn't. It's an illusion to you. It will be revealed Listen again, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. If you think it's hidden, if you think it's a secret, that's an illusion. It's because it might be a secret for now. So do you have a secret sin? Hear me say, it will not be a secret for long. You can confess, confess it on your own terms or have it revealed otherwise. But nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. God hates hypocrisy. He hates pretense. Y'all remember the story about Ananias and Sapphira? That troubling passage in Acts chapter 5? What's going on there, in case you don't remember, everybody is, um, is kind of selling their stuff and they're laying it at the feet of the apostles. And so um, there's a lot of momentum going. It's just a, the sweet time in the early church. And uh, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they uh, decide they're going to sell some property and they're going to lay it down at the apostles' feet. Now, you need to know, they didn't have to sell their property. And they didn't have to give it all to the apostles. But what they must not do 
is give the impression that they gave it all to the apostles, when in reality, they held back a portion from themselves. God hates that. God killed them for that. These were people giving extra to the church. God killed them. Now, two other stories. The woman caught in adultery. Jesus famously said, let him without sin cast the first stone. The accusers begin to leave, as you guys know the story. Jesus asked her where her accusers were. She said, they're nowhere. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The woman caught in adultery got grace. And then there's the prostitute who wept at the, at the feet of Jesus. And you know what she heard? Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira were dropped dead in a moment. And do you know why? God hates hypocrisy. It angers Jesus. He will expose it and he will punish it. It provokes Jesus to anger. Pretense or hypocrisy provoke the anger of God, where confession provokes the grace of God. You're better off a prostitute than someone who is active in the church making pretense about how good they are. The prostitute can maybe come to terms with it, weep at the feet of Jesus and receive grace. Here's what can be tricky for us. We know we're sinful. We don't do what we know we should do. And does that make us a hypocrite if we don't do what we know we should do? Does that make us pretentious? I'd say not necessarily, because hypocrisy isn't having a standard for, for right and wrong. It's the covering up of our sin that is hypocrisy. It's pretending like it isn't there. That's hypocrisy or pretense. And, and there's three ways you can battle hypocrisy, and only one of them is any good. One, just don't have any standards. You, can, you can't be a hypocrite if they have no standard of right or wrong. And you know, sadly, a lot of people who love the gospel of grace go this way kind of subtly sometimes. Another thing you can do is have high, high standards and never fail. Just make sure you don't mess up. Good luck. If you're reasonably successful at this, maybe you uh, have good habits, uh, you're a very disciplined person, you're going to become an unbearable monster because you're going to hold everybody else to this standard and you're going to be unbearable to be around. You'll, you will not be a safe place for sinners and sufferers like me and others like, like us. And if you fail, if you take this perspective and, you, and if you fail, you will find yourself on this constant, never-ending road of despair because you will be haunted night and day how you keep on messing it up and you just can't get it right. I think the third way is the only good way we can go. Keep God's high standards of holiness. Don't deny that you are a sinner a sinner who sins in subtle ways, off your own radar where you don't see it, and in spectacular ways, ways that you can't believe you've sinned in this way. 
But then, if you understand God's holiness, and you understand that your sins are more subtle than you think, or and even maybe more spectacular than you think, then the gospel might actually mean something to you. It might actually give you peace and joy. You know, some of you might have thought before, it's like, you know, I don't really find a lot of peace and joy in the gospel. It's just like, well, I don't think you get what's, I don't think you get who God is. I don't think you get who you are. If you get that, the gospel has meaning. And, and it might help you put an end to the circus your life has become of trying to make an image of yourself, trying to make people love you, respect you, notice you, like you, trying to pretend that you're a good person and simply embrace that whatever may come in life, you are not your own, but belong to God. You exist for his glory and not your own. And if you're going to boast in anything, it's got to be the cross. And that is the key to not being a hypocrite, knowing that God's standard is perfect holiness and knowing that you are a hopeless sinner and finding the gospel in the midst of that terrifying combination which frees you to confess your sins because you don't have anything to lose and rest and rest deeply and sweetly in the gospel. Keeping our eyes focused on the gospel is the only thing that will keep us from distorting God's purposes the way we see it here in this text and turning our life into a circus that is full of pretense and hypocrisy. May God help us to do this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for our many failures. We do sin in subtle ways that we do not see. We sin in spectacular ways that we don't realize how egregious they are. Would you forgive us how we have, for how we have distorted your purposes? Um, would you help us just to see who you are and who we are, that the cross might be more glorious to, to us, and that we might boast in the cross and the cross alone and really know what peace and joy mean? So would you give us this grace? In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.